have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. It may not seem like it, or it may, I'm not sure, but we're in our 15th week of our study of the epistle of Hebrews. I'm almost ready to confess this. I'm not quite sure I want to be careful because I might say this about another book. But I'm almost ready to confess that if I could only have one book of the New Testament made available to me. If I had the Old Testament and only one book of the New Testament, I may choose this epistle. It is an exposition of Old Testament text that point to Christ. We've already looked at some of them. We'll return to one of them again today. But the last several weeks, we have looked at what the author of Hebrews has to say about one verse of Scripture. And he has been explaining to us the significance of the statement that was made in the 110th Psalm in verse 4. Pointing to the priesthood, the eternal priesthood of Christ. Somewhere I read that the Old Testament predicts Jesus, the Gospels reveal Jesus, the epistles, which Hebrews is one of, the letters explain Jesus, and the book of Revelation expects Jesus. You can kind of think through that, but if we wanted to look at a broad stream of of Scripture, I think that's pretty reasonable for us to give consideration to. So we are in the midst of explaining what the Old Testament predicts and what the gospel revealed. Looking ahead to the end as we have already sung this morning of the expectation of His return. So as true and right as it is for us to talk about the judgment and the wrath of God for those who don't believe, and for the salvation that comes by the grace of God in Christ Jesus for those who believe, we also should rightly declare that Christ is coming again. It's not just a a pie-in-the-sky hope that we talk about, but it is a reality. Jesus is coming again. There's no hesitation on the part of the Holy Spirit to communicate, and we've seen this, the supremacy of Christ in all things through this human author, the one who wrote this letter. There's no question about it. He is the centerpiece of human history. Given that human history is the record of the reality of the thread of God's redemptive work and the record of humanity's understanding of himself. Let me put that in simpler terms for us. I wrote it that way, but you exist in the presence of God and your existence is by his providential design in the midst of all that he is doing in redemptive history. You, you are not insignificant. Not one person here. Every person here is here by God's 
sovereign design and plan in this time in human history in the course of redemptive history. And everything that has taken place is ultimately centered in and caught in, couched in God's redemptive history. There is no other history. In fact, the writing of all of human history, if any of you are history buffs, all the rise and falls of nations, all the global crises that have taken place over the course of human history, all of that has been in the context of God's plan of His redemption. Think about that for a moment, which brings us to our text today. I want us to read it. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 26, and we'll read through the end of chapter 8. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. And for those who are joining us today for the first time, we have been looking at Christ who is the eternal high priest. So this high priest we're talking about is Christ. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He, meaning Christ, this high priest, has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever this oath is found in psalm 110 and verse 4 where god declares himself that this one christ jesus the one that would come Predicting Christ would be this high priest forever. A priest like no other priest. Now, the point in what we are saying, and I love this because it becomes crystal clear. The author of Hebrews, Holy Spirit speaking through the author of Hebrews says, now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts According to the law, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. If you want a reference to this, this is Jeremiah 31. And as is consistent with the author of Hebrews, he doesn't point back to the human authors. He understands that this is God's word and that's how he is speaking of it now. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. thinking about this text remember that this is being given to a people who are under persecution and I keep reminding us of this because so much of what we have read today and so much of what we have sung and so much of what we have been directing as far as our thinking in regards to the fact that there's hardship and struggle and difficulty and persecution and yet the ones who find their hope in God, the ones who trust in God, the one who looks to the Lord Jesus, those individuals are sustained and kept and held. And the author of Hebrews is reminding his audience that yes, you are facing persecution. You will face persecution and hardship and difficulty and challenges as we do. Things that challenge our faith. Things that draw into question whether we really trust in God. Whether it's just something that we don't say, something that we just say, or something that really makes the difference for us in the way that we think and navigate through life. Um, we represent all ages here. Uh, some of you know that uh, my dad is older. I've shared that. He'll soon be 93. Um, my daddy's health is declining. He hasn't been doing well. He and I have had conversations over the last several weeks and I think he sees his death now in sight as he has been talking to me. And he is rethinking through his life and reliving his life. And he and I have been having conversations about the significance of his life and what life in eternity is going to be like and look like. And I've been reminded in the course of this of our uh, mortality as I have considered his mortality. But I've also been reminded that every person at some point in time will likely give some significant 
thought to his or her life as it relates to God and what that means beyond this life. And I'm saying that because that is the crux of what takes place when we begin to give consideration to our lives. We are looking at it over against, compared to what we think or what we understand about God and who He is and what that means for eternity, even if, in fact, we are rejecting God, even if, in fact, we have said that there is no God. If we say those things, we have still, at least in the course of our lives, we have looked at and given consideration to life, and we have tried to build some kind of framework around it to guide us through it, to somehow look to the end in some way, even if in the end we come up and determine and decide that there is nothing beyond this life. In other words, our faith is being called into question. So just because we do not have uh, uh, armed forces standing outside of our building today getting ready to rush in and to take us out and to shoot us in the street because we are here declaring the gospel it does not mean that you're going to escape life because you won't. You are not going to escape life without giving consideration to the reality of your life and the meaning of it. And you will always be confronted with who you are as it relates to God. The author of Hebrews understands this which is the reason that he is continuing to point this group of believers back to Christ. Now, the advantage that they had that we don't have in regards to the significance of this text and some of the others that we're looking at, most of these are either Jews, in other words, they've grown up in Judaism, and they have lived under and relied on what we're going to hear about this first covenant. They have lived under, relied on this first covenant, and because God established this first covenant, they have looked to it as the means or the direction for their salvation. And there has come a point where they have heard about that being fulfilled entirely in Christ and they have now professed Christ, but they are at a point where they are being challenged to give consideration back to this past covenant that has held them in much the same way we do as we trust Christ and we follow Him and oftentimes then begin to look back over our shoulders at the things that we have left, wondering if, in fact, that is the direction that we want to go back into or whether our faith is being challenged and we begin to question God and His goodness toward us or whether we have trusted Christ and we begin struggling with the assurance of our salvation which is a common thing. And the author of Hebrews is pointing this group of people and the Holy Spirit is pointing us today as we give consideration to this that as we look to Christ, He is supreme in all things and because He is our high priest, that means certain things for us and in His work as priest, He 
secures and in his securing what we most need, he brings the assurance of God's work in us that brings us near to God and keeps us near to God for those who trust Christ. Let's look at what it has to say in verse 26. Christ, for it was indeed fitting, in other words, it was necessary, in other words, He fit Himself, if you will, to meet the needs that we have in bringing us near to God. Let's look at what He does. One, we have already heard that he has been made a high priest. He wasn't born into a family of high priests. He didn't come uh, to his priesthood by lineage. We saw that last week. What we do see is that God established him as high priest. Turn back over to Psalm 110 and verse 4. Just so you have that reference, I want us to understand that this is exactly what David was writing in this psalm. The Holy Spirit was directing him. We sang about it just earlier in one of our hymns when we said that, uh, uh, that he was David's Lord. How do we know this? Well, look at verse 1 of the 110th Psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. But our verse is verse 4. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, pointing to Christ and saying that you are this eternal high priest. And we get to verse 26 of Hebrews and he begins to help us again. Continue to understand the significance of that. And here's why. Because it gives us characteristics. And these are not just words. These are words that are pertinent to him these are words that are unique to him these are words that that we need because we need the very essence of what these words are communicating in our own lives if we are to be near to God one in relation to God notice what he is he is holy. So regarding God, Christ is holy. How do we know this? Well, we have already heard. Back up in Hebrews chapter 1. Just make a note of that again. What is he in verse 3? He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, God is holy. The Lord Jesus Christ is holy. So regarding God, Jesus is holy. Notice what else. Not only is He holy, but He is innocent. So regarding His humanity, regarding man, Christ is innocent. You've already heard today that we are not. I don't want to keep hammering on that other than the fact that just be reminded that there is not an innocent person in here. Not an innocent person. Over the course of this past week, I've had friends that have sent me pictures of newborn babies and we've celebrated with them as, as they have received those little lives into their families and we have rejoiced with them and they look so cute and innocent. They're not innocent. They are sinners. They fall under 
the judgment of the wrath of God apart from Christ. But the Lord Jesus Christ, regarding His humanity, He is innocent. What do we mean that He is innocent? It means that He was tempted in every way, like as we are, as we have already read, yet without sin. In other words, He is sinless. But now what's in question here is that in His humanity, He also serves in this role and in this capacity of priest. And notice what else we hear about Him. He is holy, He is innocent, and He is what? He is unstained. Your copies of Scripture may read pure. There's a comparison being made here with the other priests who are not pure. In other words, there had never been a priest that was pure. In fact, we know this. If you'll look down in uh, chapter 8, you will see in verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest to also have something to offer And in comparing Christ, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since the priest who offered gifts according to the law. In other words, these priests offered gifts. And who do they offer gifts for? It's important when we give consideration to sacrifices. I was thinking about it this week. There are several questions that have to be asked when we give consideration to this whole idea of sacrifices. Number one, who are the sacrifices being made to? Well, when we look at Scripture, these sacrifices are being made to God. Uh, Who are making the sacrifices? God had designated the priests to make the sacrifices. And who were the priests making sacrifices for? Well, look back up here in chapter 7, verse 27, looking at the comparative speech here. He has, meaning Christ, he has no need like those high priests. In other words, he has no need like the other high priests to offer sacrifices daily. And there's a reason why. First, for his own sins, he doesn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sin, implying that the other high priests, as they came into the place to offer these sacrifices, what did they first have to do? before they could ever offer sacrifices on behalf of the people that they were there representing, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves. Why? Because they were not pure. They were sinful. They were not innocent. But Christ is unstained and pure. And because of His purity, He does not have to offer sacrifices for Himself. And we also hear that he does not have to offer them continually because he offered himself. So, he offers himself to God. We sang earlier today, talked about the wrath of God and the judgment that was to come because of sin. And he offers himself and bore the wrath of God. He offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins and for the sins of all of those who would believe in Him. And He offered it once and for all. Notice what it says. Since He did this, in the last part of verse 27 of chapter 7, since He did this once for all when He offered up Himself. 
For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of oath that we looked at last week, which came after the law, appoints this Son who has been made perfect forever. I think it's important for us to understand that Christ is being shown to us as being the better priest. The better priest. Now, if we're here today and we don't understand why we need a priest, then it would be hard for us to understand this text. God, in His law, established that man would have someone to represent him, to intercede on his behalf, that man would be able to enter into the presence of God. Why? Well, because we were all of sin. Israel were all sinners. And God had established that they would have to have this priest to intercede for them and to represent them. And we hear that Christ is the better priest. Look in verse chapter 8 and verse 1. And here's the point. The point is, is that we have such a high priest. Now I want you to think about it. These men and women who had trusted Christ apparently were, were under some kind of stress or strain to look back at the old system and the old covenant and to look back at the law. And it would, to some degree, make sense, wouldn't it? If you grew up in a culture where you had someone interceding for you constantly, making sacrifices on your behalf, that you might be forgiven and that you might walk and track along with God. Now, I want you, some of you may have come out of Catholicism. Some of you may be connected with Catholicism. But I will say that this is equal to what Catholicism points to, is that there is a need for a priesthood to serve as an intermediary between man and God and that the sacrifices that are seen if you will uh, when the sacraments are, are, are given and mass is taken it, it is almost like that there is a, a constant need for that priest to intercede for you and that a sacrifice is being made over again for you along the way that you might be forgiven so that you can track along through life until you sin again and then you can come back to mass again. Now, I don't mean this in a negative way. It's just inconsistent with what the scriptures tells us here is that Christ serves as that priest and he has died once and for all. That was a revelation that came to Martin Luther as he was studying Hebrews and he was struggling with the tensions of all that was going on in his life spiritually and all that was going on in the Roman Catholic Church at the time that, and pointing to the time that we call the Reformation. And he came to understand that all of this that was being done was inconsistent with Scripture because he did not need a priest to intercede for him. That Christ Jesus had died once and for all and that no more sacrifices need to be made that what needed to happen was is that he needed to turn to Christ and look to him as a full sufficient sacrifice that God had made in and through him 
In fact, one of the great things of the revelation uh, of the Reformation comes out is, is, is sola Christos. Is that Christ alone is our salvation. We're here today and we're declaring that. So it's not foreign to us. There's nothing else but Christ and His salvation. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is trying to help us understand. That this priesthood of His was necessary and fitting and He fitted to what our needs were. And what our needs are. Christ Himself. Look, if you will, in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry. And that, in other words, that His service, the ministry, that is much more excellent than the old. In other words, the ministry that the priests carried out, their work, Christ is excellent just as this covenant in which He brings to us and seals and secure is better and much more excellent because it is built on better promises. What covenant is He talking about? Turn back over to Exodus chapter 24. And let's look at this covenant for just a moment. Before we read this covenant, Scripture, Scripture is not... The centerpiece of Scripture is not about covenants. It's, but it is, and they are foundational for the meta-narrative of Scripture and all that God has done. And there are several significant covenants that build on each other along the way. And as I've been thinking about them this week, I have, and I don't say come to realize, I was reminded that every, every positive outcome of every covenant that God established has been fulfilled and complete in Christ. Okay? What is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement, and when we look at it from Scripture, and I'm going to say Scripture because I texted Brian. Brian hadn't gotten back to me yet, and he's smiling, and I'm going to put him on the spot. I'd sent him a text earlier. Tell me the difference between, and this was earlier this week, but he's busy, I, and I understand that. He, he's got... He's got He's got people he's representing. Uh, but I'd ask him, I said, tell me the difference between a covenant and a contract. Now, a lot of times people are, try to draw a distinction between covenant and contract. And, and I have read some and I have heard people talk about the difference between covenant and contract. I, I will say this, that I do believe that, that contracts are, are more transactional and, and covenants seem to be more relational. 
But we hear very little about covenants in our culture today, but a lot about contracts. But still with both, there are conditions and mutual agreements. But God establishes covenants, and I want you to know that in God's covenants, as we go back and look, there are conditions for both parties, but they are not mutually agreed upon. And here's why, is when you have God establishing a covenant, He doesn't have to come to you to find out if you mutually agree on it. This is the sovereign of the universe, and you say, well, that's not fair. Well, you tell me how someone who is imperfect would have anything to bring to perfection in trying to determine what is best and right in a covenant. Help me understand that, and then we might could talk about fairness. But the point is, is that God comes in the course of these covenants, and He establishes conditions to a covenant, and then He carries out His end always as it pertains to whatever conditions were established. So the very first covenant seems to be a, a, a covenant around works that He makes with Abraham. Now we don't, excuse me, with, with Adam. He doesn't, we don't hear the word covenant in Genesis chapter 1 through 3, but everything is pointing to the fact that God has come and He has said to Adam and Eve, this is the way things are going to be. And in light of that, here is what you are to do. And if you do these things and you Keep my commands. In other words, if you do what I say do, here's what you can expect from me. And if you don't, death will come. And he establishes his covenant. And on the back side of that covenant, when we get to Genesis chapter 3, comes the judgment that is handed down because Adam and Eve did not uphold the conditions of the covenant that God had established. And when we look at Genesis chapter 3 and we hear the judgment, we hear in that a word of promise and hope whenever we hear that the seed of woman will crush the serpent. Now we've talked about this when we looked at Genesis. I'm drawing this to your attention because the next time we hear of covenant, he establishes a covenant with Noah. And the covenant with Noah was, is that because of man's sin, I have judged the world, and I have judged it, and I have destroyed everything on earth except what I have saved in this ark, and I will not destroy this earth again in this way. When we get to 2 Peter, we find out how it will be destroyed. It will be destroyed by fire, but never again by water. And then he gives a public physical sign of his covenant. Anybody remember what it is? It's the rainbow. So when we're oohing and on at the beauty of the rainbow, remember that that is a public covenant sign by God Stating that he has given his word that he will never destroy the earth again with water. And in the fact that there was even salvation, that was secured in Christ. We track along a little bit farther in scripture and we hear about a covenant that God established with Abraham. 
We looked at that when we were studying Genesis. It comes up in Genesis chapter 12, and then in chapter 15, and then in chapter 17. And then when we get to Genesis chapter 22, we hear about this covenant again. And it's in a huge way because God has given Abraham, his son, this promised one that would be this people that would represent him. And if you haven't read Genesis chapter 22 in a while, go back and read it. Because Isaac asked the question, the same question that we uh, are looking to answer today in Hebrews. Isaac asked the question just before uh, his daddy uh, is ready to sacrifice him because God has called on him for sacrifice. And he asked his daddy, Abraham, he says, where's the sacrifice? You know what Abraham's response was? God will provide it. Dad, we're going up to sacrifice. Where's the sacrifice? God will provide it. And a covenant was established. And then in Exodus chapter 24, we hear this covenant that is established with the people of Israel when they come out of Egypt, which I pointed, we took that track through covenants because it comes to this covenant and this is the covenant in question as the first covenant that we read about when we get to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 of chapter 24 of Exodus. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. In other words, those were Aaron's two sons. And 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. They can't come near to God. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain, with twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And this covenant was established. And it was sealed with the blood of the sacrifices. And the the people's condition was the fact that they would keep it. And they said, We will keep your word. We'll keep your law. But you know what? They didn't keep it. They didn't keep it. And you know what else? They couldn't keep it. Why? Because they were apart from God. And they were sinful. And they were not pure. And they were not innocent. And they couldn't keep it. That was the first covenant. But then... God comes to Jeremiah and he speaks. And we'll not read it from Jeremiah, but just go back to Hebrews chapter 8. And there was a fault in this covenant, that first covenant. 
You say, well, you mean God gave something that was subpar? No, He gave something that was pointing to what would become real in this covenant that would be sealed and taken care of when this priest came. I was thinking about it this week. People all along should have come to understand that what they were seeing taking place was really nothing but a shadow because these priests were going in every day making sacrifices and every year coming there making sacrifice for the atonement of sins and then those priests would die and another crop of priests would come in and they were doing this day after day after day after day. Well, if things are going to end we would have to stand in reason and say, how is this going to continue? There has to be something that is final and better in this if this is necessary. And God has said it's necessary. And that's the reason that God came to David in Psalm 110 and verse 4 and said, we're going to establish a priest forever that will seal and take care of this. And when we get to Hebrews, we hear about it. it was the reason why we read Isaiah 53 today, pointing to the one who would do what? Pointing to the one that God had appointed who would make sacrifice for sin once and for all because God would crush His own Son. You see how huge that is? And when we get here, what do we hear about this other covenant? Verse 8, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will establish a new covenant. Why? Well, the old covenant did not complete the work. The old covenant was not satisfactory. It was good. It pointed to, but it wasn't complete. When I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. The covenant that God had made with their fathers Based on God's condition, they were going to keep this law on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. But what happened? They didn't continue in my covenant. And so what did God do? He said, I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And listen to this covenant. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. Do you know the thing that distinguishes an individual who trusts in Christ? Do you know the thing that distinguishes the work of Christ now in the life of people and the work of the law then? Is that in Christ there is inward transformation. What am I trying to say? If you're here today and you're trying to keep the law to earn your salvation, it's futile. Israel couldn't keep it. God knew that they couldn't keep it. He had pointed to Christ through their sacrificial system and had even made sure that they would have witness and testimony of this constantly because every day the priests were making sacrifices and once a year on the Day of Atonement they went through this elaborate ceremony 
to point to the fact that they needed atonement and that it was not complete. And in Christ, He completed it. And now, there is inward transformation for those who trust the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm thinking about people right now who are thinking, well, I, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not good enough to be in the presence of God. You're right. But in trusting Christ, an inward transformation will take place. And that in and of itself points to the fact that that transformation is an ongoing work of transforming us. How do we know? Turn over to Romans chapter 8. For those of you who have labored hard to memorize Romans chapter 8, Look in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to do what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. In other words, there is a transformation that is taking place where we are conformed. We are being given the hearts of God and the laws of God are written on our hearts. And then notice what else is said there in Hebrews chapter 8. The last part of verse 10. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. The proposition of this is the same. The difference is, is the way that it works out. In other words, God came to Israel and said, I'll be your God and you'll be my people and you keep the law. And because you will not and cannot keep the law, I'm going to point you to one who will eventually keep the law. The reason why it was so significant for us to read just a moment ago in verse 26 of chapter 7, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest to represent us, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, is because we are pointing to Christ who has done this for us and now represents us there. Notice what else it says there in the last part of verse 10. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Trusting Christ is coming to know God. And then in verse 12, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Absolute and complete forgiveness in Christ. So what is the significance between the first covenant and this covenant that we're talking about that Jesus has initiated? Here's the significance. Is that God has in this covenant given the divine assurance 
that all of these things will take place in the life of the one who trusts in him. The author of Hebrews was saying, listen, don't turn away. Don't fall away. Be assured that Christ is doing everything that is necessary, that is fitting for you, because God has guaranteed it in Christ. So our assurance of salvation, our assurance of the declared righteousness, our assurance of eternal life, Rest in the fact that God has in this covenant made a divine promise of absolute forgiveness and intimacy with the believer. What does that mean for us today? Well, for the life of the one who trusts Christ, I would encourage you to be reminded that these things again, as we have said, are sealed and taken care of in Christ and in Him alone. But if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus and you have been waiting on something to profess Christ, you've been waiting on trying to figure out how you can get better, if you're seeking to conform outwardly to win the approval of God, you will not, you cannot do that. But if you trust in Christ, there is a guaranteed inward transformation that will take place because you will know God and come to know Him. And you will be secure in Him. Will you pray with me? Father, I... The fullness and the richness of what You have done for us in Christ in ways are incomprehensible. And yet in other ways, you have made it so crystal clear. You have undeniably loved us and done for us all that we could not do for ourselves. And you have undeniably secured it in the fact that Christ Jesus has done these things for us. And you have promised us life and you have promised us security and you have promised us assurance. And yet, Father, in the way that we live and navigate, most of the time our lives don't even represent the fullness of this reality. And it's so as we wonder And we languish back and forth and flip-flop. And God is with that sense of behavior, God, that we even come to You today longing that 
you would press into our minds and hearts the reality of what it is that Christ has done for us and is doing for us now as He secures these things and sits at your right hand forever. That our lives are secure in You. And Father, we cry out to You today, even for those who are here in this room who may not have trusted You who are wondering, what does all this mean? That you would in your word and even through the things that have, have sought to be said today, speak to their hearts bearing testimony of your goodness toward them in Christ that they would come to trust you. And then Father, help us see it again as we come here now. And look at your table. Knowing that it is not a shadow. But that it is a confirmation of the reality. Of what Christ has done on our behalf. In Jesus name. Amen.